I think whereas Wall Street is viewing Microsoft as being a safe haven in tech, I, I view things differently. I think my, Wall Street's being very quick to reward Microsoft with a premium valuation relative to Google, Facebook, or any other enterprise tech company. The narrative might be that Microsoft is more insulated from regulatory intervention, which might be true. But more importantly, there's there's the sentiment among Wall Street that Microsoft has maybe a best of breed enterprise tech portfolio, or they have like they're safer. They're not going to be disrupted. If anything, Wall Street seems to think that Microsoft will disrupt all these smaller operators. There's this idea that because Microsoft is this big mega cap tech titan, they could just throw money at any product and they will have a superior product offering to you know anything else. But if you are actually looking and following that tech sector closely, you'll see that the narrative is actually not maybe not so true. Hello, everybody. This is Kirk Spano with Seeking Alpha, and today I'll be interviewing uh, Julian Lin, analyst and founder of Best of Breed Growth Stocks. We're going to talk about a couple of topics, but we're going to focus on Mega Cap Tech, which just went through a bunch of earnings. Uh, we have Apple still coming up, so we'll talk about maybe what to look for with Apple. Uh, but we've seen Amazon and Meta and Microsoft and a few others that I think uh, Julian should have some pretty interesting thoughts about. So Julian, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me, Kurt. Well, it's good to have you. I've been reading your work for, uh, I don't know, three, four, five years at least. It looks like you've been on Seeking Alpha since 2017 and 18. So I think I, I caught you right on the front end. Uh, ha- have you been enjoying it? Yes, I, I find Seeking Alpha to be a great community of investors. I mean, I consider myself an investing nerd. And I mean, there isn't quite another another website where you could be with like-minded people. I've enjoyed the experience. So you grew up uh, in the San Francisco area. So you're familiar with Silicon Valley and Berkeley and San Francisco and everything else that's in, in the area. I'll be visiting uh, San Francisco and Sonoma coming up, so hopefully I'm going to get to learn wine country from a, a first-hand uh, or first-taste experience. In the last several years, you know, we've seen a lot of changes with COVID, and tech companies really went through a huge growth spurt because of that. And now we're taking a look at the mega cap tech company earnings here that have been coming out and a few more to come. Why don't we start with Microsoft? I know it's not your super favorite stock, so let's go there first. Tell me, what are you seeing with Microsoft? You know, it got quite a pop here on the stock price. I, I have some some thoughts about the AI hype. Uh, what are you seeing with Microsoft? What do you think about the share price? I, I think that most of us probably know that it's a fortress company, but you know, investing is about getting good value for what you're buying. So why don't you tell me, what are you seeing with Microsoft in this cycle? Yes. So Microsoft, in my most recent report, I I gave it a buy rating, but I also cautioned that it's mostly a buyable rating, especially compared with some of the mega cap tech tiers that I greatly prefer more than Microsoft on valuation. Uh, In regards to Microsoft, it's, yeah. So as you mentioned, it's being viewed as a fortress company and that's definitely driving the valuation. I'll discuss my views on that in a moment. I think the results uh, heading into the quarter, I expected that the results will show some macro impact, but I don't. I didn't think Wall Street would care too much just because at this point, it's becoming clear that the stock is being driven by this hype around AI, uh, potential for Bing search to become more popular. 
it really didn't matter so much, you know, what they reported. Just, I mean, for starters, the stock wasn't necessarily in a bubble, like a meme stock valuation. It was around 30 times earnings. Not cheap, but, you know, it's, it's fitting this narrative of being driven by AI and hype for Bing. In uh, the quarter, they did show some strong Azure growth, but it did seem that some of that growth was funded because they gave some money to open AI. But of, but of course, that's not necessarily a bad thing. I, I think in regards to my personal view of the outlook for the company, I think whereas Wall Street is viewing Microsoft as being a safe haven in tech, I, I view things differently. I think my, Wall Street's being very quick to reward Microsoft with a premium valuation relative to Google, Facebook, or any other enterprise tech company. The narrative might be that Microsoft is more insulated from regulatory intervention, which might be true. But more importantly, there's there's the sentiment among Wall Street that Microsoft has maybe a best of breed enterprise tech portfolio, or they have like they're safer, they're not going to be disrupted. If anything, Wall Street seems to think that Microsoft will disrupt all these smaller operators. There's this idea that because Microsoft is this big mega cap tech titan, they could just throw money at any product and they will have a superior product offering to you know anything else. Take, for example, Zoom, right? We're recording this on a Zoom. Zoom stock is trading um, much lower than pre-pandemic uh, levels or even pre-pandemic levels, largely in part because Wall Street views Zooms as maybe being disruptable by Microsoft Teams, that's their offering. But if you are actually looking and following that tech sector closely, you'll see that the narrative is actually not, maybe not so true. For example, even with just video conferencing, Microsoft Teams, it's not quite a comparable offering to Zoom. Uh, whereas Zoom is very, it's just a much more robust offering. Microsoft Teams leaves a lot to be desired, even in cybersecurity, where Microsoft has a press presence with Microsoft Defender and an endpoint protection. Microsoft is losing it's not really competitive with the likes of a CrowdStrike or Sentinel-1. It's it's quite well known if you're looking for security, if you're in the sector that Microsoft is not really defending or not really offering good protection. So there, there's this mismatch of the narrative that Microsoft is much more superior than other smaller tech plays. And thus it deserves this premium 30 times earnings multiple, even though earnings uh, revenue growth probably slows to the mid single digit rate, you know, over coming years. So, I mean, this, this 30 times earnings multiple is pricing Microsoft like a consumer staple stock quite clearly, you know, something that's very consistent, should be able to just grow forever while it takes market share. But there is the risk that at some point the Wall Street realizes that uh, their fortress is not as strong as it seems. Yeah, I, I think you really brought up a couple things I want to go back to. And um, I think we're going to merge it into a discussion with the other two big cloud players, which are Google and uh, Amazon. But you mentioned uh, the valuation. And I'm a Peter Lynch guy. So I like peg ratio, forward looking peg ratio. And, you know, at a PE of 30, but a growth rate of, say, around 10, you've got a peg ratio of about three, which is really high. And, you know, Peter Lynch always talked about you want a peg ratio between one and two uh, small caps. You can often get for around one. Sometimes you get them under one because people just don't recognize what they're looking at. Uh, but, you know, your large caps will get a bit of a premium valuation. So so maybe it'll be close to two and you can still call it fair value. So I, I think you're spot on that Microsoft might be getting overvalued. We 
took a look at Microsoft on that last decline because we were wondering if the AI hype would give it kind of a V-shaped recovery, kind of one of those parabolic rebounds. And that's what's going on, especially the other day. What did it go up? $15 a share. So, you know, we're taking a look at the chart and that's the fourth leg in our process. We look at secular trends and then government and central bank policy, then the fundamentals of an industry and the companies involved. Then finally, we use tech and quant analysis. So I'm a quant and my partner is a Elliott Wave and Harmonix tech analyst. So we, we take a look at all of this and we take a look at the chart on Microsoft right now. And as, a, as an author, you'll understand what I'm about to say. If I go out and say that I think Microsoft is overvalued and it can correct 20 or 30%, I mean, I'm gonna get beat up with trolls with great big keyboard billy clubs, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, I kind of laugh and, you know, I get teased because sometimes I'll pick on the trolls right in the comments and I'll just make fun of them because it's entertaining for me. And, and I don't really care, you know, if it costs me one subscription, I don't care. You know, I mean, I, I do all right for myself. I have been for a couple of decades and I'd rather get the message out. So with Microsoft, I think I'm on board with you. I think that it's getting to a point and tell me if you think I'm right, uh, or at least it's something to be concerned about. I think it's getting back to a point where it's approaching its all time high. And if it doesn't break out from there, uh, which would be unusual on a parabolic move, uh, then I think that you have a pretty significant bleed down on Microsoft that could occur, especially relative to some of these other big tech stocks, which, you know, there's seven companies that kind of drive the entire S&P 500. Uh, I guess you throw in Salesforce, there's maybe eight or nine, but you know, you take a look at the giant companies and I don't know, I think Microsoft might be kind of priced for perfection. What do you think about that? Yeah, I think that's that's a definitely a reasonable assessment that I could agree with. I think maybe investors should be wondering why is Microsoft kind of behaving a little bit like a meme stock, right? It's definitely trading sort of like with this narrative investing that got so many tech investors in trouble, you know, before this crash. Uh, I think Another question to ask is why is Microsoft management seem to be kind of pumping AI so hard, right. um, given that it's kind of a small, very small, not really significant component yet. Uh, of course, it's possible that, you know, Bing becomes much more successful, but at the same time, Microsoft, it must bear repeating, Microsoft is already a very big, big company. So, I mean, it's hard to move the Bing, needle. It's hard to move the needle. Right? It's 30 times earnings. Just to give an idea, right, if, you, if you're talking about Microsoft at 30 times earnings, Google at 20 times earnings, and Google, and, and I'm sure we'll discuss Google in a moment, uh, Google, it's the valuation should be, it's actually even cheaper than 20 times earnings just due to some loss generating businesses. With Microsoft, I mean, just they could grow their earnings by 30%. And assuming Google doesn't do anything, you know, it's the same valuation. But there's an important distinction I think tech investors must understand with Microsoft and other tech companies in that I, I'm of the view that Microsoft's margins are quite tapped out, meaning that, I mean, I'm, I'm sure many have seen all of the layoffs happening in the tech sector, which quite unusually, right, you're, you're seeing all these tech companies do a very large amounts of layoffs with seemingly minimal impact to their growth rates. Yes, it, it's quite true that in the tech sector, these companies, they're kind of over-investing growth, which is good and bad. It's It might be bad in that it means that the profit margins are lower in the near term, but it's good in that 
uh, in the future, right? I mean, this just reflects a lot of fat that could be taken off. You know, you could compare this to companies like Walmart or your neighborhood grocery store, which are probably operating very lean, right? So you can't really expect so much margin efficiencies from those more mature companies moving forward. But from a company like maybe a Facebook or a Google, there's still a lot of fat left on the bone, even though they're already generating high profit margins. But I can't really say the same for Microsoft. So you get this weird mismatch where forward revenue growth is probably going to be mid single digits, earnings growth maximum high single digits, double digits for a couple of years, but it's trading at 30 times earnings. So definitely I, I would think if this hype for AI were to subside and if investors were to start focusing on, you know, maybe comparing Microsoft to more cheaper mega cap alternatives, I mean, the stock could be due for some volatility. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I would like one of the uh, meme creators, you know, cause I, I'm presuming that's a whole industry at this point, to maybe take the seven dwarves from Snow White and, and, and put some Microsoft executive faces on them. And then instead of having them sing, hi-ho, hi-ho, have them sing, AI, AI, bid our stock up, AI. You know, <laughs> I, I, I think that there's... Uh, I, I, I think the hype around AI is classic right now. I think it's going to lead to, you know, clearly some long-term winners. Uh, and I think it's actually going to probably be best for industry that can uh, use the efficiencies of AI. Like I, I think the auto manufacturers are just going to keep getting better. Um, you know, Tesla is kind of showing them away, so they don't even have to do as much by trial and error because Tesla's doing it. But, you know, you, you take a look at, the AI hype cycle and man, it's plotting right on top of that Gartner chart, right? I mean, it's just the, the, the spike straight up and then people are going to go, Oh, so where are the profits? And then it'll be that whole, you know, depressed feeling that the people will get on certain companies at some point. And, and I'm not saying that Microsoft's going to crash and I'm not saying that it's a bad company. It's one of the best companies in the world. Um, but I think the shareholders could be going through a period of consolidation at least at some point and maybe even correction. Uh, I have two clients who work at Microsoft and, you know, they're not executives or anything. There's no inside information here, but they're both consulting with me because I own an investment firm and I've been doing this for a long time now, helping executives and people with stock-based compensation figure out selling strategies. Okay. I have half of my net worth in Microsoft, how do I get that down to 10? And and that's what we're doing right now. That's what they've both asked for is, hey, I would like to figure out how to reduce my Microsoft exposure. So when you have employees telling you that, it kind of perks me up and go, oh, okay. So they think that it might be getting a little bit fairly valued and too much risk for them, uh, especially since they get their paycheck there too. You know, what should the public investor think, right? So if we flip over to Google, since uh, the chat GPT uh, and Bing is the hype and Google is the one that's the leader, you know, what do you think about that? Do you think that Google has a lot of exposure there or if it's around the edges? I, I have an opinion, but, you know, I'd like to hear what you think. Is Google really exposed there or is it more of a minor consideration? Do you mean exposed to the threat of chat GPT? To, to or... Bing taking some of their advertising revenue. Got it. So it's definitely a possibility. I, I think search or similar to any like social me network media thing, it's not 
necessarily the best product that wins. It could be the most viral product that wins. I think Nicholas Nassim Taleb in his book, uh, Full by Randomness, Randomness, noted how even Microsoft, right? Even uh, when Bill Gates became famous by being very successful in Microsoft Word, you know, all those office suites, those were not necessarily the best products all the time, but they were the most used products and the most popular products. And it was a winner take all scenario. So yes, it, it's possible that uh, Google right now, they've, they're the dominant leader. It's possible, um, you know, if, uh, for example, Bing were to become more and more popular with the newer generations that, you know, that trend could shift. But I think Wall Street's being quite quick to believe this narrative as almost a, cert almost a certainty. And I think they're underestimating uh, Google's ability to uh, invest. I think they're, for starters, I, it's not it's not like more search activity on Bing just in, immediately drives so much more advertising uh business, right? Google is definitely benefiting from the fact that they have this huge network, they have this huge scale. Uh, advertisers are going to be more willing to do more consistent business with them, right? That's, that's just a fact. So I, I think that right now, Wall Street's very bearish on this idea that AI could disrupt search, but they're underestimating the ability for AI to actually benefit Google. Google, I mean, right now, yes, the common public may view Microsoft to be a big leader in AI, but the reality is that it, it might be different, right? I I think Google, Amazon, Facebook, all three of these companies arguably have actually, may probably have been investing heavier in artificial intelligence than Microsoft and OpenAI up till now. The only difference is that they haven't created this generative AI customer-facing chatbot that would give the impression of being in the lead. So I think Google, I mean, they've been using artificial intelligence already, right? Like micro, uh, Facebook, in their earnings call, they highlighted that on average, 20% of what their users see on the feed are recommended by artificial intelligence. You know, these are posts from people, uh, creators that the users don't even follow, but the AI just knows that they will like it, right? They, but at the same time, you know, no one's really saying, oh, Facebook is a big AI play. But in regards to Google, I think AI, yes. I mean, if there's a chatbot that might reduce the gross margin on search, but I think investors are missing the point. AI at the same time could reduce other costs other ways, right? It could um, increase the efficiency or the um, the relevance of the search results. It could reduce the operating expenses related to, I don't know, content management. It's not, a, it's not such a one-sided view that the Wall Street is taking. I think AI is going to benefit all of these companies enormously, not just Microsoft, even though Microsoft seems to be the only stock that is going up due to AI. Right. So one of the things you mentioned was the network effect. And as somebody who advertises two different businesses on Google, I will tell you the idea that I would switch my advertising dollar from Google to Microsoft is very unlikely. And, and there's a couple of reasons. One, everything at Google is built, right? So the network of placing ads in front of people who might be interested, right? With all the implications about all the data that they use i won't use the word steal and abuse i'll just say use because they all do it and and people you know have chosen the more customized internet experience versus the more private one uh, and that's a choice that people can make and, and clearly the more customized use of the internet has just one hand over fist versus the people who want to keep their privacy right so if you want to have a very private 
internet experience, it's not that hard to do, right? I mean, press an incognito window, but who does that? So, you know, almost everybody wants the ads to pop up in front of them to be for them. Hey, I've been looking for, you know, a futon. I'm going to get some futon ads because it saw me search. It is tough to get both. You want a personalized internet experience, you have to give up some data. And Google has that data in spades, right? So when they platform an, an advertisement, uh, like I'm pushing into 401k plans because technology has brought the cost of 401k plans for small employers down 50 to 70%. And I can offer a better 401k plan versus what was out there 10 years ago and those legacy plans that are out there. And we're just at the very front end of that, that all these employers can cut their expenses in half. It's an easy sale. It's a layup. So I pay Google to get me some leads. I think that Microsoft is many, many years behind Google in closing that gap and building out that network. So even though Microsoft is the, you know, the 800 pound gorilla in the office suite um, and in operating systems, just because chat GPT will give you some answers to things that you can ask in real language. Well, I can go on Google and just type the question in. I agree with you. I think that the hype around chat GPT driving earnings at Microsoft is ambitious. And, and I think that it's probably more of a 10-year thing than a two-year thing. And that's something that I talk to my subscribers about um, you know, I go to CES most years and um, I went right before COVID in 2020 and it was a monumental event. So many things they talked about back then from fintech to AI, quantum computers and EVs and everything else. It was maybe the best CES I've ever been to. They point out for investors, you better think about two years versus 10 years because the things that get the hype and the price appreciation real fast, they might not really be two-year projects. They might it might take them 10 years to get something done. I have had a term that I've used called the baby Googles. What do you see with the rest of Google? I mean, some of the moonshots, some of the other businesses you're getting into, fiber is finally starting to move a little bit. What are your favorite parts of Google that aren't in the public perception usually? The, the reason I like Google stock so much is that I already like the current core businesses at the current valuation. And I don't even know everything that they have, even if it's publicly disclosed. But all of that seems to be extra on top. Um, but in terms of what's in the other bets, you know, they still have the self-driving car Waymo. They have fiber, as you mentioned. Uh, but I think investors, for some reason, continue to underestimate Google Cloud. So Google Cloud historically has not been profitable and let alone nearly as profitable as what is implied at Microsoft or Amazon Web Services. And for that reason, you know, investors seem to believe, oh, it could just never be profitable. When in reality, that's not quite the case, right? I think a lot of Washington investors may, may not realize how these monopolistic businesses or even all just a typical tech company, a lot of them are choosing to keep profit margins lower by investing aggressively. It's not that they're unable to show profits, right? This is this is something by choice and it's it makes a lot of sense. If you have the ability to invest you know, $100 at a high return on investments and show less profits, you know, than if you only invest, you know, $50, you should do it. You should, even if it shows less profits now, if it has a bigger payoff later, I mean, it makes sense to invest as much as you can. And that's what, you know, Google has been doing. So I think uh, historically Google Cloud has been generating negative earnings 
which means that if you're evaluating Google, if you're evaluating Google on a PE ratio basis, Google Cloud is detracting from that valuation because it would have an implied negative valuation. Uh, whereas I am of the view that you know Google Cloud, I mean, this is a business that could probably grow 20, 25%, at least for the next five years. Uh, on the top line basis, this is a business that I believe could have a net margin of 30% or more over the long term. Right. So this is this is a business that's worth over uh, the last time I looked at uh, did uh, some of the parts valuation. I value Google Cloud at around twenty five to thirty dollars per share in just value alone. That that would add to the core business. So I think with Google, the things I'm most excited about is just this idea that in contrast, in sharp contrast with Microsoft, Google seems very willing to invest heavily in future growth. And so what we see here is that this is a company generating, you know, very, very high profit margins right now, but those margins are understated because they actually could be much higher had the company not been investing in so much long-term bets. Yeah, I think you're spot on there, actually. Um, you know, Amazon put out their earnings last night and the stock went up. And then in the conference call, they said, you know, top line growth on the cloud is slowing down. I know that cloud growth globally for the whole market is still growing pretty robustly. So if Amazon is growing slower, that means that one of the other big three players mainly, uh, at least, is is growing. So Azure does you know, pretty good over at Microsoft, but Google Cloud, which is what I use, uh, it actually reminds me of Apple because everything's pretty easy to use. I'm sure it has all the other functionality that everybody else has, give or take. Um, but for me, I'm looking for easy because, you know, I'm not a tech guy. I just want, you know, I want to be able to plug it in. I want to be able to use it. And I want to be able to tell my webmaster and my advertising people here, this is where it is. You know how to use it. You know, I take a look at Google. And I'm just thinking to myself, they remind me of where Amazon was, whatever it was, five, six, seven years ago. The hype on Amazon was that it was starting to take everything over, but it didn't always have that premium valuation before it hit that kind of kink in the curve. Well, that kink in the curve, if you take a look at the chart, what what was that? That was when Jeff Bezos, when everybody said Amazon won't be profitable for two, three more years, Jeff Bezos tapped the brakes a little bit on CapEx, just a little bit. And all of a sudden, boom, there's these huge profits. And everybody's like, where did that come from? Do you think that that sort of thing could happen with Google if they just tap the brakes on CapEx or stock-based compensation? It seems to me that there's a way for them to all of a sudden have big profits. Yes. Is yes, that what absolutely. you're seeing too? I think I mean, a quick Google search, uh, any listeners could do a quick Google search on sort of you know tech compensation, especially at these very successful tech firms or sort of like what their offices look like, what kind of food they're getting for free or what kind of benefits they're getting right. you know these if these companies i mean again google facebook they're already highly profitable and somehow actually seem to think their profit margins are too high but they're they're missing the elephant in their room that the, the reality is that these companies are so profitable in spite of the fact that they're holding back margins right so if they wanted to and i think google they try to give a hint of that um uh, Google Cloud finally showed a, a small profit um, this quarter. Um, they tried to give a hint of that, but I think Wall Street just didn't want to care because they were focused more on the threat from Bing. Uh, but yes, um, I am of the view that these companies, both Facebook and Google and 
lot of other tech companies, right? If they wanted to just show a profit or not just a profit, like if they wanted to show big improvements in margin, operating margin in one quarter, they could do it, right? Um, whereas maybe just two years ago, Wall Street was very long-term minded. They were, or I mean, some were long-term minded. They were of the view that, okay, these companies are investing in growth where you want to invest over the long-term. This is great. But right now, Wall Street's very focused on the near term. So they're not very positive on this idea that Google or Facebook or Amazon are focused on investing heavily, holding back margins right now. Wall Street kind of wants them to generate the most profit they as they could right now, which is more along the lines of what uh, Microsoft is doing, for example. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're I I, I you and I are thinking a lot a lot alike on Google. That's one of my favorite um tech stocks. I also like Amazon. I think Google and Amazon are both going to be very disruptive to a lot of industries from healthcare to to EVs and different sorts of subscription services. I think that Amazon stands a very good chance of splitting into two companies, AWS on one side and everything else on the other. Uh, they could even spin off an entertainment company. But I think that everything in retail stays together probably because I think Prime ties that together. But AWS could certainly be its own company, right? And then that unlocks value. So I, I think there's a lot going on here with these earnings that people don't unpack because they look at it as a quarterly earning versus what is this in the evolution of the company? And where is the value going to be in three, four, five years? And everybody looks at the next year and the last three, but nobody looks at the next three to five. And, you know, Value Line and, and Morningstar and everybody else that, that invests successfully They've pretty much proven that three to five year window uh, is the window that you should be looking at if you want to get a low price today and a big return tomorrow. Uh, Jim Rogers, who was one of my early idols at, when I started doing oil and commodity investing in 1999, which made me a real popular guy in 1999. Um, right? I mean, that was the tech hype. And that was the biggest tech boom ever. And I was telling people, sell your tech, especially the ones that aren't ever going to make money and start buying oil and, and commodity stocks, mainly because I saw an interview with Jim Rogers on CNBC where Kernan and Faber laughed at him for saying that he was selling his tech stocks to drive around the world and look for commodity investments. And they laughed at him. And then here I'm looking at this you know, guy who made himself a billionaire at 37 years old with a little bow tie, just taking it. I'm like, hmm, do I listen to... Uh, the, the couple of washouts on CNBC who couldn't do this for a living? Or do I listen to a guy who at 37, you know, made himself into a billionaire and semi-retired for a while? Two to four year time frame. I mean, you got to be really, I mean, you got to be Jim Rogers good, I think, uh, to do that. Three to five gives me a little bit of wiggle room. So that's what I use. And Amazon and, and Google, I, th I see a lot of disruption company coming um, in the post TikTok world, which I think is about to happen. You know, I think that there's some winners from that too, right? So if Congress actually decides, hey, it'll be popular to pick on China and they get rid of TikTok, you know, who are the winners there? Well, I think YouTube is a clear winner there, right? So they just introduced shorts. And then Facebook, you know, Meta is a winner there. And that was a company that when it was 250, 300, whatever the heck it got up to, I told everybody to go back to 100. It was in an article on, on, on Seeking Alpha. And man, again, keyboard trolls, man, I took it right in the head. But then it got down to 100. And I should have loaded up. I should have backed up the truck, right? It did exactly what my chart said it would do. It did. It, you know, went through the business change that I expected. 
and I didn't buy it. So now Facebook is up whatever it was, 15% the other day on earnings. I think there's one pull, I think there's a pullback coming just because it was too parabolic, as well as you alluded to earlier, they're gonna have to do some spending on on AI. And and Zuckerberg just said that. So tell me about Facebook, Meta, Meta, Facebook. I call it MetaFace sometimes. Are they lining up good for the future? Because I don't know. I, I'm not a Zuckerberg fan. I wish he'd just become chairman and hire somebody likable to be CEO because then I think he could get back into the young market. I don't know. There's something about that dude I don't like. And maybe it's, it's me. Should we be thinking about getting back in there? I think you're probably already in there. Yes. So Meta uh, heading into this print, uh, I, it was my largest position by far. And, and I confess that, you know, after in the Today and yesterday, I, I did sell some Meta to put into Amazon, but Meta remains my number three position. Uh, I remain, I, I realize a lot of investors might be looking at this parabolic move in Meta and thinking, oh, it's time to take profits. It's too expensive. It's 20 time, 29 times earnings. But again, I mean, so it had gotten too low. So to kind of view this relative performance and be like, oh, it's overvalued. I mean, you got to understand it was it was too low at 100. So maybe maybe comparing the current price to wherever it got at the lowest is not the best comparison. And I, in my view, Meta definitely represents a very bullish thesis at this point, right? In this past quarter, what we saw was the company, I guess let's, let's frame it this way. The company was facing headwinds from both Apple, uh, this idea that uh, due to the privacy changes, they would lose the ability to monetize certain advertisements as much, and then as well as competition from TikTok, right? These are the two most important issues. I mean, again, besides just the tough macro that's affecting everyone, these were the two issues facing Meta. But this recent quarter, and to that regard, the past two quarters even, uh, Meta has executed very strongly, right? So here we're seeing user growth return. There was this one quarter, I think it was three quarters ago, where users declined sequentially, uh, users user growth has returned, right? And revenue revenues grew again this quarter. And operating expenses, even though there was a lot of um, a lot of those restructuring charges in this quarter, operating expense operating margin was you know it declined by a lot less than it has in the past couple quarters. All right, this, this is a company that it's in spite of the fact that you know CEO Zuckerberg is really investing in this metaverse vision. Uh, even though they're investing, I think at this point it's a run rate of you know fifteen billion dollars annually on the metaverse. That's a lot of money. They're spending that much money on this thing that might not happen for the next ten years, but they're still making this much money, right? The stock is still trading at twenty nine times earnings after metaverse investments, and I think there's two things that you know investors should uh, keep in mind when thinking about. Facebook stock going forward. Uh, the first one is that earnings should go up. Uh, one, I mean, as the macro improves, you know, the revenue growth accelerates. This company is executing against competing against TikTok. And as you mentioned, uh, maybe TikTok gets banned. That would be extremely bullish for Facebook. I think just a couple quarters ago, I might have been of the view that Snapchat would be the biggest beneficiary of a TikTok ban. I mean, and they might they might still be, but the problem is that I think. Over the past couple of quarters, amidst this intense competition from TikTok, Meta has taken advantage to take market share from Snapchat as well. And the, there's a big difference between these two companies in that, whereas Meta is 
deeply, deeply profitable and investing heavily, right, in innovation, Snapchat wasn't as profitable. So when TikTok became so strong, Snapchat just was not able to invest enough to stave off that competition. So I think in a TikTok ban, you know, Facebook, they will, you know, there will be a big impact to the top and bottom lines. Although I know I'm not really factoring in a ban, you know, in my bullish thesis for for Meta. Uh, but besides this, you got to focus on the fact that Meta did lay off 21,000, roughly 21,000 workers. I should preface by saying layoffs. I'm not going to say layoffs are good for society or anything. I, I definitely feel the people who lost their jobs. But just as an investor in Facebook, right, an investor in the Meta stock, the, the reality is that when the company lays off 21,000 people over, you know, five months, and I note that five months ago, Meta had like 80,000 headcount. So they laid off 25%. This is a huge company, which is right. already extremely profitable. They laid off 25,000 of their headcounts, you know, just, just like that. And this is, this is not something that they had to do, right? So this is not like, oh, when the economy improves, they're just going to hire them all again or whatever. Um, no, it's this company, this, even CEO Zuckerberg, which a lot of people seem to dislike, they're showing this focus on profitability that Wall Street has not seen before, okay? Or at least from this company, right? Perhaps maybe, and this has happened a lot around tech where Wall Street was of the view that these tech companies, they just could not be profitable. These management teams did not care about profits. There was just that prevailing view when in reality, it wasn't really the case. It was just these, these management teams wanted to invest in growth. And then now that, you know, the, the tech stocks crashed, a lot of these management teams have taken steps to show, oh, actually, we could show profits, right? Like here, Meta's laying off 25% of their workforce while still maintaining this growth rate. In other words, as the macro improves, you know, revenue growth comes back, and but their operating expenses don't. That's, that's a big, big um, thing. And just for an example of how dramatic that yeah. change could be, just look at Uber. Look at the financials of Uber going into the pandemic and coming out of the pandemic, right? Like going into the pandemic, everyone thought of Uber as a cash guzzling. You know, they're just losing money on a non-gap basis, which is pretty bad. Now Uber is generating actual cash flow, obviously, on a non-gap basis, but it's 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 night and day, right? Uh, Facebook heading into this was highly profitable. What happens after they have 25% less headcount moving forward? It's it's unusual. So I think that as Wall Street is viewing this somewhat hyperbolic rally in tech stocks and Meta, yes, there's very likely there, you know, there's always going to be um, pullbacks. That's just a reality of the stock market. That's that's how it works. However, Wall Street may still be underestimating this impact. The cost rationalization happened across a lot of these tech companies. You know, just even just on a two-year, three-year time frame, you will you should start to see these the positive effect of these layoffs on the bottom line. Yeah, I I I think that that's a pretty astute observation. Again, I'll go back to the Amazon example of when they suddenly put up big profits. You know, we're a year into an earnings recession. I think four out of five investors don't know that. You know, earnings have been coming down for a year. That means that we are less than a year away from the comps looking really good for a lot of companies. 
and 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 that could be even sooner it could be as soon as this autumn it could be october but you know within a year from now this earnings season your comps are going to look pretty good because i don't know if we're bottoming out on the earnings right now or if there's maybe one more quarter because of uh you know, the banking tightness, uh, maybe getting a little tighter. You know, we'll see. We're, we're close, though. Um, one thing I would say about the tech layoffs, uh, it's interesting. I went and got my hair cut a couple weeks ago, and two little old ladies were going down the whole list of things that are wrong in the world. And um, <laughs> it was it was kind of funny. But the thing that caught my attention when I actually flinched, you know, and they noticed me flinch, was one of the little, little old ladies says, all these tech people are losing their jobs. What are they going to do? And I wasn't invited into the conversation, so I didn't say it out loud. But in my head, I'm like, they're going to take summer off. And when they feel like going back to work, they will. <laughs> you know, these aren't folks that are going to have long-term unemployment, AI or no AI. You know, they just might have to change what they're doing, right? They might have to uh, move out of the high rent district and go somewhere where they can, you know, grow some grapes on the side while they do their tech consulting. And I know that's the case because I know people doing it. The efficiencies being driven at some of these tech companies, it's interesting to me because it's companies that are making big investments in AI. So those big investments in AI that the tech companies are starting to benefit from, that's going to get brought to industry in the next two, three, four years. And so the industrial companies, and again, I point to the to the auto industry as because it's such a giant industry, I think you're going to see companies that benefit from AI suddenly become more profitable and, and have more efficiency and probably higher quality uh, because everybody who can use an AI as an assistant eventually will. Again, I think it's a 10-year process, but not a two-year process. But the auto industry is one that I look at and I say, wow, all these factories are going to be built by 2025 uh, for the 2026 model year because of the way the laws are working. All these auto executives told me it's because they were at CES 2020. They said, hey, in 2026, we can't make money on ICE vehicles just because of the way the rules are going to be. So we have to move everything but our heavy vehicles to EV. The heavy vehicles, we'll see which way they go. Hybrid and hydrogen seem to be the two leading contenders, but the auto industry touches a lot of other industries. A lot of my customers here in Milwaukee are tool and die shops and, uh, you know, companies that make parts, you know, the ones that survive are going to make a lot of money, but there's going to be companies that don't survive because those parts won't exist on an EV. So it, it, it's interesting to me. You saw Bosch. What did Bosch just buy? Bosch just bought something that had to do with the EV industry. So, you know, it, it's it's interesting the way things are moving. And that EV revolution that everybody says is 10 years away. Hey, man, the growth rate's way into the double digits. Uh, we have, what, 9% of the people will, ha will have uh, an EV or will be 9% of the sales will be EVs this year going to double digits by next year. And in 2026, when Ford and GM uh, get rid of half of their ICE vehicle factories, clearly the EV sales jump. All these things are coming and the tech companies are gonna, going to benefit because they're going to be the ones selling Ford and GM, Volkswagen, you know, you go around the world, all these companies are using AI and they have their own programs, but they need one of the giant AI companies to help them out. So I think that that's, pretty interesting you saw that facebook is going to put even more money into ai and and the metaverse and everything else uh, the metaverse isn't just fun and games uh, my dad was a you know a, a skilled labor guy uh, steam fitter and mechanic and uh 
sheet metal, long, long career, good pension. The augmented reality would have helped him a lot, right? I mean, trying to fix something in a tight space. If you could do that with augmented reality, think about Google Glasses, whatever they call those now, for people who are fixing your AC or building a machine or taking care of the elevator or whatever. You know, now they don't have to go back and forth. They can just, the, the glasses tell them, here, this is the part that's broken. Here's how you fix it. So I think that that's interesting to me is how this all translates to industry, where those efficiencies come from and, and which companies will make money and which companies won't. Because, uh, you know, transition is hard and the negative narratives get talked up. And I think that we're addicted to negativism, but I think that in the long run, everything gets better. It has been since the dark ages. I don't think people really can wrap their head around that. The world's been getting better since the dark ages. That's a really long time, you know, and we have speed bumps because, you know, we decide to go to war or, or, or whatever. There, there are setbacks. There's no doubt that there are setbacks and they last a few years at a time. However, the world just keeps getting better. And I think people should focus on that. Let's finish, if you don't mind. Um, I saw that one of the companies that you were a little bit bearish on was Roblox. And that is... Uh, kind of in a duopoly, uh, at least two of the bigger companies in an oligopoly on metaverse and AI, uh, not AI, but AR and VR, gaming and in industrial applications for AI. Tell me about Roblox and then maybe stack it up against Unity and, you know, kind of tell me about both. Maybe do a little compare and contrast because I think I'm super interested because I've been investing in Unity. Am I going to make money? <laughs> yes. So I think Roblox, yeah, Roblox, I recently wrote a bearish article, um, largely because at this point, you know, after many quarters of waiting for this uh, supposed acceleration in growth, you know, even though the company is already lapping or finished lapping those tough pandemic comps, you know, growth has not really come enough to justify the current valuation. I think the stock price right now, you know, it's... It's the valuation is high, maybe just because the stock, you know, is down so much from the all-time high. Some investors, they might be thinking, oh, it's already down so much. It shouldn't go down lower. They might be still stuck in this kind of um, this kind of mentality. Uh, but the, the way I view Roblox, especially as compared to Unity, is that Roblox is, they're really just that gaming platform, right? They're really just this, whatever they have, obviously, you have the developers that could build on the Roblox platform, but you know, everything, they're all kind of similar, you know, everything's in that world. Whereas the difference with that and the unity is that it's not really, yes, you could use their software for gaming, but that's not really necessarily, it's not really limited to gaming. Really what their platform is, the software from unity is, is that it allows you to do 3d modeling or, you know, kind of things like that. Right. Um, hence stuff in the metaverse. And that has enabled Unity to increase its enterprise customer list, right? And I, I still I still view Unity as benefiting from the gaming secular trends, but I think longer term Unity is going to help power this, you know, idea of this the metaverse applications across industry. This, this idea like if you're going to be developing a car, you're going to want to be able to see how it looks before you build it, right? And then you might want to design it, uh, you could be, visualize it in your computer screen instead of having to draw it out by hand. So that's something that Unity, those are kind of secular tailwinds that Unity could benefit from. And I note that Unity's valuation is far more reasonable than Roblox, uh, you know, even though the company did take on quite a bit of debt to fund um, their, their acquisition of Iron Source. 
and, and not not to mention, um, I mean, it's not perfect at Unity. I, I do question why they repurchased one point five billion dollars of cash of a stock um, this past quarter. Some of the actions from management are not perfect. They, they they kind of seem a little bit a little pumpy. But at the same time, I mean, there's there is value. I do think that over time, as macro improves and as Unity kind of integrates Iron Source and you know kind of fixes their issues with create uh, monetization, you know, growth should accelerate. And I definitely am much more bullish on the long term view for Unity than Roblox. It's there's definitely, I, I view there to be a hot, many, many more scenarios where Unity does well and quite a lot of scenarios where, you know, Roblox becomes more irrelevant. But the weird thing is that the valuations are just very different between the two stocks. Yeah, I, I, I agree. And that's everything you just said is what I've been trying to say for a year uh, to people. But when a stock price is down, they're like, well, why should I buy this? And my answer always is, well, do you like prime rib? You know, if they say yes, then I go on. Otherwise, I have to pick out a different food. But do you like prime rib? Yeah. Well, you like Angus prime? Yeah. Well, it's kind of expensive. Yeah. So usually it's maybe $30 a pound. But if they have a sale and it's $20 a pound, you don't buy it because, oh, my God, the price is down. I don't want it anymore. You know, I, I look at some of these markdowns on certain stocks. And again, I understand this is something that I learned from Jimmy Rogers is that 80 to 90% of the people really don't do any research. Not, none at all. I mean, they'll read a couple of our articles and things like that. But, you know, I try to steer people to the investor relations page and it is like running into a brick wall. Sometimes, you know, you can't tell people to go look at the last three PDF reports uh, which are mainly charts and pictures of bullet points. It's like giving a kid a book with a lot of pictures and they still won't learn the three words on the page. Um, you know, it's kind of amazing to me that you and I have this major edge just because we read the stuff that you're supposed to read. And hopefully we have a, a good approach to analyzing what we read, right? But by understanding the businesses, Right, actually learning the businesses. Some guy in Omaha talks about this. I don't know if he's very successful or not. But you know, <laughs> by by learning about the companies, right? Really understanding what they're trying to do. You know, I'll give an example. I just wrote an article on Rio Tinto. I haven't really followed them in years because I invest in Freeport MacMoran every time it drops in price. I looked at Rio Tinto, I understood the terminology, didn't really understand their model. So I went and read 10K, 10Q. Going back a few years, I took a look at all their presentations that they've done, uh, their quarterly production updates, and I wrote this article on Rio Tinto, and then I applied some discounted free cash flow to it, and which, you know, there's some really good tools out there just through your brokerages that allow you to, to, to look at, you know, economic value and things like that. But I was able to look at Rio Tinto and go, meh, it's a great company. It's not cheap. And it never really outperforms forever. It has, it goes, it's very cyclical. And I told people that in this article and, and I knew that cause I, you know, I understood the base information and it's easy to look at a chart and say, Oh, this is what it does over and over and over again. I don't think that people understand that when a company like Rio Tinto or Facebook, uh, which I missed, I said it was going to happen and it happened and I didn't invest enough money and I put in just a starter position. I should have made it my largest position like you did. I would double my money in a year. You know, Rio Tinto, I said, look, if it gets down to this price, 
should be interested. Not terribly interested today because there's not mar- much margin of safety at that price. And I think people miss, and you've been talking about it with valuations, you get your margin of safety, I think, two ways. One, by really understanding the business and whether or not you should even entertain an investment in it. And then second, buying that value at a discount, right? Or buying the growth at a discount or whatever. So when you talk about valuations, do you have kind of a target because you're looking at growth companies, are you using PEG or, or how are you really trying to figure that out? A discount and free cash flow? I mean, I guess it's probably all of that. So at the end of the day, all of these different valuation tools, they, they, they kind of come to the same, they come to the same result, just, you know, different ways. But I, I, I used the PEG. I, I used to Peter Lynch's, I also am a big Peter Lynch uh, fan and disciple. I, I used the PG ratio, but I do modify it um, because yeah. a lot of the stocks on my cover may not be profitable right now, or their margins are very low right now. Whereas I would view their long-term margins to be much more substantial than and very positive compared to where they are now. So I, when I use, when I look at the PG ratio, I would tend to look adjust the earnings based on what I believe their long-term margins are. So for example, even if a company is unprofitable, I would if I assume you know for example. That's a good example, like a Shopify, for example, right? Shopify, very expensive stock now. So I'm not recommending buying it right now, but it's historically not that profitable. But at the same time, this is a business, you know, they're kind of they're just earning commissions on these e-commerce sales, right? So over time, you would imagine that they should be able to generate some a much stronger margin than they're currently reporting. So I would look at the PEG ratio based on what I would view to be a more, you know, once they're more stabilized kind of margin and compare the valuation against that. By doing that, I, I'm able to value these companies based on uh, price to sales multiple instead of price to earnings multiple while taking into account their long-term margin assumption. Okay. Yeah. And, and that's, I think, brilliant way of doing it. We talked about CapEx cycles with, say, Facebook or Amazon or whoever. I think that anticipating those changes and then putting it into your model is hard, but probably where you make the biggest money. Wouldn't you think that if you can anticipate that next quarter or next year before Wall Street jumps on it? And, you know, again, that guy in, in, in Omaha talks about institutional imperative, which is all the guys at jobs in, in Wall Street or on Wall Street, you know, 90% of them just don't want to lose those jobs because they pay pretty well for, you know, what they're doing, in my opinion. But you know, they don't update their thesis as fast as they should. And I really, truly think that they're trying, again, this is a uh, Buffett speaking, they're just trying not to stand out. Because if you stand out and you're wrong, you get fired. If everybody's wrong, who cares? You don't get fired. So I, I, I don't know if that changes in the world of AI. That's interesting, right? There's a lot of change coming on. And I know that change makes people uncomfortable. It drives negative narratives. What would you say is the biggest positive narrative out there for an investor? Or what is one of the positive narratives that you could give us to make investors not afraid of the future? Sure. Yeah, I will say, I mean, if you're just looking broadly speaking, like, you know, at an S&P 500 index, fund, like why stocks on the whole, you know, why you should be bullish on stocks, you know, long-term, I, I would say that it all, it all, a lot of it comes down to tech, right? I mean, a lot, a lot of it comes down to this idea that more and more, I mean, yes, it gets a bad rep 
when a lot of these mega cap tech companies are driving the majority of the S&P 500's return or they're forming such a big percentage at the S&P 500, one thing to understand is that as more and more revenue is going through these tech companies in a term in a little more in a highly profitable manner, those 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 dollars are more valuable than if they were coming from a more cyclical company or more cyclical sector, right? So, you know these you're, these companies like Facebook, Google, think about um, obviously right now the economy it could always get worse, but right like we're we're just going we're just going through a period of two years, you know, where these stock prices went down heavily for a macro environment was supposed to slow down growth substantially, yet they're still generating as much profits or even more in a lot of these tech companies, right? So because of that, these dollars of profit that are being generated from the same market might be worth more just because of the stability and the higher, the greater resiliency through different market cycles. I mean, that's just one observation. I'm meant to oversimplify everything, but that's just one idea that of how tech is helping to maybe improve the long-term trajectory of the S&P 500. Yeah, I, I agree. That's uh, I think that's a great takeaway. Uh, not only the tech companies, but what's impacted by tech, which is almost everything. All right. Well, I enjoyed this. I hope that uh, the Seeking Alpha audience gets some nice takeaways on big tech. We didn't cover Apple. Uh, their earnings are coming up. Maybe we'll get back to that. Uh, but I did want to finish up on Roblox and Unity because I think that those are companies that get overlooked. And at least in my opinion, it sounds like Julian's there too. Uh, Unity is a pretty interesting idea if you want to look at something that, I don't know, I, I think it could be a 10x stock from 30, 40 bucks, wherever it is right now. You know, I mean, it take take time, but man, I just I just see what they're doing, and that Iron Source acquisition I think was brilliant. Uh, I think it was needed, but I think it was brilliant that they did it, and and I think in the long run it ends up being a pretty good price. So you know, take a look at Unity, and you know, Facebook if it comes back into the hundreds, you might want to buy it. Uh, yeah, it, you know, you miss a lot of things. You 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 see something, and then you. Don't swing the bat. And because you think it's a slider and not a fastball. And Facebook in hindsight was probably a fastball down the middle. And I was worried that it was a slider. Oh, well, um, I was a very bad baseball player too. So back in the day, uh, if I was on your team and I played for a very long time till I was 45, uh, if I was a starter on your team and hitting second or third, your team wasn't very good. But if I was your utility guy, that filled in when somebody else was on vacation, you had a pretty good team. So uh, I'm just trying to be the utility guy here, right? Thank you very much. Julian Lin, investing group leader at Best of Breed Growth Stocks. I'll talk to you again soon. Thanks for having me, Kirk.